2 Peter chapter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start reading from verse verse 9 again. But remember what he's doing is he's warning them about false teachers who are going to be coming. They're not yet arrived, but they're going to be coming. And then when after this book when we look into the book of Jude, Jude is going to say the false teachers have already come. Uh, so this book was obviously written before, before, uh, before Jude was. And so let's start reading from, from verse 9 of 2 Peter. Oh, let me, let me mention verse 8. You know, we were looking at, at, uh, at Lot, and Lot had said, you know, take my two virgin daughters. Uh, actually, there was another commentary that somebody online sent me where that commentator said that that uh, um, possibly Lot was speaking sarcastically, like, why don't you just go ahead and take my two virgin daughters and, and do, do something to them if you're going to take these guests in my home? Well, without the intonation of hearing a person's voice, it's very hard to know. But uh, uh, we've seen that before. A few weeks ago, we read about the prophet Micaiah, and King Ahab had asked him, uh, uh, should I... Should I uh, um, should I go to battle? And Micaiah says, yeah, go ahead. Everything will be all right. But it's very hard to know that he was speaking sarcastically because we don't know it until Ahab says, I told you to tell me whatever the Lord tells you, not to just speak like that. So in that context, we knew. With this context, it's very hard to know, but I just wanted to point that out. Okay, so in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they, are, they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have not known, will in destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received the rebuke of his own transgressions, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. For who for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord of the Lord and Savior Jesus, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. This last state has become worse for them 
than the first. For it would be better for them had they not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Okay, so he is speaking some very strong denunciations here. But when it comes to false teachers, when it comes to false teachers, uh, there's, there's very little good, there's nothing good said about them. And uh, uh, Paul is, is warning in this way, he's speaking against false teachers. But he starts in verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or from trial, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So he says that they're kept under punishment. Some people think that that under punishment means from the day of their death till the time when there's going to be the great white throne, ju- great th- white throne judgment. Another view is that, you know, from right now, from right now, it doesn't, there, there's a lot going on in their lives. There's destruction. And he says, especially in verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Indulging the flesh in its corrupt desires and despising authority. Now he's speaking here of false teachers, but there are principles that apply in any person's life, even though he is specifically addressing false teachers. He says, especially those that indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So the two things he pulls out as being really devastating for the destruction of lives is indulging the flesh in its corrupt desires and in despising authority. Um, and then, then he goes on to talk about this, this despising authority. He says, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring uh, reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Uh, some think that this is a reference to what, it, what is described in Jude, where, where there was an argument over the body of, of Moses, and uh, we will get to that. Others, others think that this is, this is a more general thing, more general, uh, um, where, where people are reviling uh, angelic majesties and rebuking Satan just so boldly, without realizing uh, even what they're doing. But... Um, uh, this, this text that it says in verse 10, that especially those who indulge in, in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Then he goes on to describe some of the things that happen in their lives. So if you look in verse 12, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. So he says, you know, there's some creatures that were just, God put them here, and they were, they're here to be killed. Sort of like chickens in a chicken farm. I mean, they're, they are raised to be killed. He says they're, they're gonna, these are going to be just like them. They are raised to be killed. They are going to be wiped out. That's, that's what he gives them. He says, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure. So suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This huge debt that we owe. And then he says, he says they're going to suffer wrong for the wages. They've earned this. They're going to get exactly what they earned. 
They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their own deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery. So again, you see the, the, the sexual realm with these false teachers. They have eyes full of adultery. And this full of adultery, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it takes us many words to describe what they're doing, but, but it has this sense that every woman that they see, these false teachers, they view them as a potential adulteress. They don't view them with innocency. They view them as a potential adulteress. And it says, enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. They're, they're enticing unstable souls. This is generally new believers. New believers are easily drawn astray. I remember when I was just getting excited about the Lord and, and uh, uh, meeting people and, and getting involved in, in, in invited to a Bible study. Right that very same week, I was approached by some people from a, a particular cult. And they started sharing, and they used the Bible, and they started sharing Bible verses with me. And I thought, oh, these are, these are Christians too. I'll, maybe I'll go to their Bible study. And they told me a little bit about their group. And so then I went back to the person who was leading the Bible study at the church that I had started going to, and I told them about this thing in their group. And he said, oh, Jim, you want to be careful of that group. And, uh, um, and he was absolutely right. He started telling me things about that group, and I saw things that, that they were telling me that, that just didn't seem right at all. And he gave me some scripture verses, and I looked at them, and I said, wow, this is really contrary to what they were teaching. And the next time they came back, they invited me to their home, and their home was, it was a, it, it was a place where, where many people shared the home, and, and uh, um, uh, just sitting on the couch there in this, this Christian home, there was this guy and this girl really making out. And then lots of women around, lots of men around, and, and all the women were pregnant. And I'm thinking, something just doesn't seem right here. And then they started sharing verses. And I pulled out some of these other verses that this young man had given me earlier in the week, and they just didn't know how to handle these. And I never went back there again. But one of the characteristics is that you see that, that, that there is this... this uh, this lustfulness and this sensuality that is spoken of here. So Peter doesn't mince words. He says, you are going to see this. One of the things that they, 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 they really, the characteristics of these false groups and these false teachers is that you will see this thing of sensuality. Their eyes are full of adultery. And so, you know, I, I reflect on different people that I know. This thing of, of uh, indulging the flesh, indulging in all the desires of our heart. It is super, super destructive. If we take our flesh and give it whatever it asks for, it brings destruction upon a life. And I can give you some examples. So, there was a, a friend of mine in college who was a very handsome young man, really handsome guy, and, and all the girls were just, just so interested in him. Whenever he walked into a room, I mean, the, 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 the women would just look at him. He, had a, he was not a believer, and I saw the struggles in his life. It was terrible for him, and he indulged himself, which is nowhere close to what happens to some young men today using these apps like Tinder, which go from one woman to another. 
and you will see in their lives the destruction that comes in. I had another young lady recently come to me, uh, one of my students, and she was saying how hard it is because her roommate is always using Tinder, and like three days a week, I mean, that uh, um, and she was an undergraduate, that her roommate is just picked up by some guy at the coll- in front of the college. She goes off for a couple hours and then returns. And you can see in these people's lives this amazing destruction. It is like the personhood starts to go away. It's like the individual starts to fade away. They get so involved in indulging the flesh that they lose their personhood. And you see this sort of thing described to us. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So this same expression that he uses for a man being joined to his wife, he said the same sort of thing has happened when a man is joined to a prostitute. So you take a man or you take a woman who is joined to multiple people a week. Now, through these, 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 these sorts of apps, what happens is they're becoming one flesh. If you can become one flesh with a prostitute... There is something that happens in the physical realm. You give a part of your life away. You give a part of your life away. This is what what Paul is saying. A part of your life is given away. In marriage, this is an investment. This is an investment in another individual. Outside the bonds of marriage, what happens is you look at these people's lives and it is just deadness deadness. This is what happens to a life. It is highly, highly destructive. It is not a victimless crime or something. It is not a victimless event. It is not two consensual adults where there is no long-term ramification. What you will see is you will see a terrible emptiness in the women, just absolutely terrible emptiness where they're trying to be like a man, where they can go from one relationship to another and have it not affect them. But, oh, it is affecting the man. It is affecting the man in a different way than it is affecting the woman. But it is affecting the man tremendously. The Word of God speaks against this very clearly. Speaks against this behavior. When we indulge in the flesh... What happens when we give over to our flesh over and over again? The life is being sucked right out of us. This is what happens. When this is happening within the context of marriage, it is an investment in another person and it is building a relationship. For for a woman who is doing this in this sort of way, outside the confines of marriage, they are never happy, ever. They are never happy. They're always miserable thinking that the next one is going to be the relationship. And what happens is, as we try to indulge and give the flesh what it wants, we always need more. It is never enough, and we always need more. The flesh is so wicked, and this is why he talks about this indulging in the flesh. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute 
is one body with her. For he says, the two shall become one flesh. And then, then he goes on, he, uh, um, uh, where he, he talks about that, that uh, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. If you are a believer, if you are a believer and you are giving in to the sensuality, the things of the flesh, I am telling you it is going to draw you away from the Lord. As far as I can tell from the Bible, you will never lose your salvation but you are going to have a miserable life here on earth. Miserable. You'll never be able to enjoy the fruits of walking with Jesus. It will suck the life right out of you, and it will make your future marriage very, very difficult. That's what it will do. What you do as an unmarried person will affect your future marriage. If you think, well, it's not marriage, so it's okay. I can sleep around a little. It's not going to be a problem. It will affect your future marriage. I have heard many occasions, you know, because I have been in the university since I was 18. So I've been in the university a long time. I've worked with people for a long time. I've seen marriages come and I've seen marriages go, many of them. And often what happens is a young man will, say, have a relationship with several women prior to his marriage. He'll have a sexual relationship with several women prior to his marriage. He now gets in marriage. It is very hard for that one woman to fulfill that young man who has had many different relationships with young, with young women. And he starts gravitating back to one of those old relationships, and then it brings destruction to his current marriage. That's what I have seen. I have seen this with my own eyes. Several times I have seen it with my own eyes. In fact, I'm dealing with one of the occasions of this right now. This is what happens when we disobey the word of God. There are always ramifications when we disobey. And the world is trying to tell us one thing, that these things are all right. These things are okay to be done, and it's okay. It is not okay. And you see these people who indulge in this routinely. It is like life is just drawn out of them. To get them to be happy, to get them to, to have pleasure and be fulfilled is very hard because the life has been drawn out of them. He is warning against this sort of behavior. He said the, the false teachers have this behavior. It's not just false teachers that have this sort of behavior. Anybody can fall into this. You don't have to be a false teacher to fall into this, but he's describing where it can take you and what, what can be done. And then he goes on, he goes on in, in uh, uh, if, if we read in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. The, the eyes become full of adultery. You start looking at every woman as a potential adulteress. Every woman, you start looking at a potential adulteress, and it is easier for them to manipulate the young believers because the young believers don't know very well. They are not deep in their faith yet. It is harder for them to resist, and they will particularly go after the younger believers. They don't go after the, 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 the very spiritual women that attend prayer meetings and, and love the Lord and are singing to the Lord with George. They don't go after them. They will go after the ones that are easier to manipulate. And this is what happens. They are never satisfied. The flesh is never satisfied when we indulge 
when we indulge in this. The flesh is never going to be satisfied. Then he goes on, he says, um, he, he compares this to Balaam. Balaam was this prophet who was hired by the king of Moab in the book of Genesis to curse the children of Israel as they were coming into the land. Remember where Moab came from. Moab was from the, the adulterous relationship of, of Lot with his second daughter. Ammon was the Ammonites were the first child, Ammon, and the second child the, the, was, was the, the progenitor of the Moabites. And the king of the Moabites wanted them to curse the, the children of Israel when they were coming into the land. So he, he hired Balaam, this prophet, to curse them. And Balaam was told by God not to go, but he loved the money. He loved the money that was offered to him. He ended up not directly cursing them, but what he did, he said, oh, look, I'm not going to curse them, but I'll tell you what you can do. To get them, to, to confuse them and to get them up, is you send your, your pretty Moabite young women to start mingling with, the, with the, the Hebrew young men. And that caused a great plight among the nation. And, and uh, uh, anyway, the, the, he, was, he, was, uh, he was reproved for that. And uh, so we, we can actually see that in, in, uh, in Genesis. It is, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Numbers. In Numbers chapter, chapter um, uh, 31, Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, Moses is telling all about what Balaam did. And he says, behold, these caused the sons of Israel. Mo, Mo, this is Numbers 31, 16. Behold. These caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. The Lord was so upset because they started marrying Moabite women. The young Hebrews were marrying Moabite women. And this was the plan that Balaam had given to the king of Moab. And so Balaam ends up being killed when... when when, Hebrew, when the Hebrews come into the land, they wipe out the Moabites and they, they, they wipe out uh, uh, Balaam, the prophet, along with them. He says they're like this. He says they do this because they love the money. Balaam wanted the money. He went against the ways of God because he wanted the money. And he says uh, in, in verse 17, These are springs without water and misdriven by the storm. These are springs without water. So you're, you're in a desert land. Somebody tells you there's a spring over there. You see, you see that, 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 that hill? Right in front of that hill, there's a spring. And you get there, and there is no water. He says, these teachers are springs without water. It is a very hard thing to be in a church where you're not getting teaching. And he says, you go to these, these false teachers, you're not going to get good teaching. I'll tell you, people are hungry for teaching from the Word of God. They really are. If you think that you have to have lots of cutesy little things and gadgets and things, fine. But I'll tell you, they're not so much into that beyond one or two lessons. What they are really hungry for is the Word of God. Believers hunger for the Word of God. If you give them the Word of God, they will return. They will come back for more. He says, these false teachers, it's, it's like if you have sheep and they're looking to you, as the shepherd, like, could you bring me to some, some, some uh, green pastures where I can eat? And the shepherd has nothing to bring them, nowhere to guide them, because the shepherd himself does not know. It is a terrible thing to be in a place where we get no Christian teaching. And uh, uh, he says, th th these, are, these are springs without water, these men. 
and they're mist driven by the storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. This, this uh, black darkness that he's talking about is often, often uh, uh, viewed as, as uh, um, the lake of fire, this black darkness, because the, the lake of fire is described as a place of great darkness. It's, it's an interesting dichotomy here. It's a lake of fire. Fire usually brings light, but the lake of fire is a place of black darkness. So how can this be? Well, did you know that there are fires that don't, that are transparent, that don't give light. A hydrogen fire. You, you, you ignite hydrogen, you don't even see it. There can be a hydrogen flame right in front of you, you don't even see it. So I don't know. This is just the chemist in me has to project that maybe this is a hydrogen fire in the, in, in, uh, in, in the lake of fire. But, but it, it, because it's black darkness there. Verse 18. For, the, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity... They entice by fleshly desire, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You see, again, there's the sensuality thing. You will see this often in cults. There is a high degree of, of, uh, uh, of, of sexual relationships going on in the cults. Because there's this, this whole thing of sensuality. He gets at it again. These are the characteristics of false teachers. It's not just false teachers that fall into this stuff. These things are destructive in a life. He brings it up again. He brings it up again. And good, good for Peter for bringing it up again. We need to hear over and over again about this thing because our culture is saying all these things are fine. All these apps are fine. No problem. I'm telling you, it is destruction. If you want to destroy your life, go into this sort of way. It will destroy your life. Would you like your life destroyed? Would you? If you would, that is the direction to go. Your life will be destroyed. You will never be happy. You will never have the joy of having a wife, of having a husband who loves you and you love them and you are committed together in raising these children and having this relationship. There's lots of things that you can do. You, 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 can, you can mow the lawn of your neighbor. That's fine. But there are some things that are exclusive to a marital relationship that you don't do that with your neighbor. They are exclusive. And he's talking about things of exclusivity here. These things of these sensual practices, this is to be reserved for marriage. And you think that this is old and prudish. This is the word of God. This is truth. We have to understand. Every word in this book defines what the universe is like. It defines what the universe has to be. When it is written in this book, it's not just that I observe this, therefore I'm going to tell you that. No. This precedes what happens in the universe. This is how the universe operates. When the word of God says it, this is how the universe conforms. As a scientist, I chase the universe to try to explain it. The word of God defines it. It's not saying, hey, here's how the universe works. You know, if you do that, you're going to get in trouble. No, he said, I've already defined it that way. It has to happen that way. You will not be an exception. You will not be an exception. There, there are... There are physical laws that, that govern this universe, and that's the way it happens. And they are tuned and fine-tuned very precisely. There are physical rules that define this universe. 
and you step over these things, it is always painful. It will always bring you pain. And if you step over it a lot, destruction, destruction, destruction. Very hard to make to, to bring happiness after that. The way is you repent and you start following the word of God. And he says, prom, they promising them freedom, oh, 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 sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So he's saying they'll go after these young believers, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. They're promising freedom. There is this, this, this uh, statement of Seneca. Who, Seneca lived, he was this Stoic philosopher, lived in the same generation as Jesus. He says, to be enslaved to oneself is the, is the heaviest of all servitudes. To be enslaved to oneself is the, is the heaviest of all servitudes. You know, our, our heart, our own heart is so wicked, can be so wicked. And, and uh, uh, to be enslaved to this is just terrible. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse than the first for them. These false teachers did not know God, but they understood what God's ways were because they were hanging out with believers. They understood. They had the knowledge of God, but they rejected it. And it was, he says it's going to be harder on them because remember, with knowledge comes responsibility. With knowledge comes responsibility. When you learn something, when you see something in the Word of God, with that knowledge comes responsibility. You can't just say, well, I see all these other people doing it. No, if you have knowledge of this, you are now responsible. With knowledge comes responsibility. And when we go against these ways, he says it was better if you hadn't had the knowledge and you did this than if you have the knowledge and you go ahead and disobey it. We are held to a higher standard as believers. As believers, we are always held to a higher standard than the world. We cannot do what the world does and get away with it. They may get in a little trouble. We get in a lot of trouble. Our standards are much, much higher, always. And the more we learn, the higher the standard is raised. With, with this knowledge comes greater responsibility. In verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. I want to turn to, uh, to, to uh, Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And in this psalm, the, right, the psalmist is writing and he's saying, look, you know, it seems to me that those who don't walk with God have it much easier. Their lives just seem to be much happier and stuff. This guy, and this is a common feeling sometimes among young believers, that, that they see the people in the world and they think, oh, they're having so much more happiness. I've seen this. I've had discussions with young believers. There was a young woman in the Bible study, and then she started hanging out more and more with the people of the world. And, and she said, you know, they, they're, they're, they're good people too. I said, yeah, but you start hanging out with them, it's going to be a real mess. And lo and behold, she did more and more and more. And before, before you knew it, she was drawn right back into the world, right back into those illicit relationships. Look in, in Psalm 73, start reading from verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, 
and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock wickedly and speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against heaven and their tongue parades through the earth. So he says, look, I see these people and it seems like they don't suffer with what I suffer with. They don't struggle with what I struggle with. Plus they can speak arrogantly. Nothing seems to happen to them. This is what the psalmist writes. But Then he goes on, verse 10. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and they all, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure my hands, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So he says, if I just compare my life to theirs, they seem much happier than me. I'm a believer. They seem much happier. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a thought like this? Well, then he goes on. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when, the, when one awakes. O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So you see, this friend of mine, who was a friend of mine in college, who, who, uh, who saw my conversion, who saw my coming to the Lord, um, and then, and then just, just, just to see his life, that he had one relationship after another, after another, and soon it wasn't satisfying at all. And then to see that he got into alcohol, and just to see how alcohol just utterly destroyed his life. The alcohol just destroyed his life. Never, never was there happiness in his life. You just saw this utter destruction that occurred. Um, you know, one time my colleague, my colleague Rick Smalley, who was at the university, Nobel Prize winner, he had had multiple marriages, multiple relationships, multiple broken homes, and, and uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now. But before he was a believer, he used to say to me, Jim, how do you, how do you do it? How do you have one wife who really loves you and you really love her, and you have all these kids that you seem to just get along so well with? And then he's talking about my children. And then he said, and your research group, just... Everybody seems to just, just do so much work and you guys seem so happy and you're laughing together and you're joking together. How do you do it? So here's this Nobel Prize winner asking me these things. You think he has a Nobel Prize. He's got this stuff figured out. Well, he didn't. He didn't. He ended up coming to the Lord and, and, uh, and his life began to change. And he saw and he started to understand the difference as he saw these lives. And, and these are the things they see in our lives. The world doesn't have it. The Nobel Prize winners don't necessarily have it. These are secrets that are here for us in the Word of God. There's truth here for us. This is the way of life. This is what He has for us. This is the best way that He has for us. This is what, what Jesus has to offer us. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you so much for your mercies, for the grace of God, for the mercies of God. Thank you, my Father. Thank you, my Lord, that you have mapped out for us the good and the right way. Thank you, Lord, that that even when our hearts might begin to slip and we see people of the world and we might start to envy them, that you reveal to us what their end is going to be like. Just in a moment, they will be destroyed. Father, I thank you for these warnings. Lord, I pray for these young people that they would see that every word in this book is true. Every word proclaimed is the truth of the universe, how it has to run because your word has said that it will run this way. Father, I pray that you'd give them a fear of you and a fear and respect of the word of God. Father, I pray for these young people as they are confronted with so much in the sexual realm. Lord, I pray that they would follow you, that they would follow you. Lord, I pray that they would take your word and that they would follow you and that they would see that your word is pure and right in everything that it says, everything. Protect them from false teachers, I pray. Watch over them and protect them. Lord, I pray for their marriages, for their marriages to be, that those would be godly marriages where they'd walk together with you in closeness. Father, that through these relationships you'd bring up many children who love you. Father, your grace abound there, I pray. Father, for the unbelievers here who have no ability to walk in this because they don't yet know you, Father, open up their hearts that they might know you and save souls today, I pray. Save souls. And I give this time to you for the glory of Jesus. Amen.